Mr. John Salter. How you doing? Nice to see you, my man. Yeah, good to see you. Always a pleasure. Um, thank you for joining us on Resolve Podcast. Yeah, so, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I try to do, like the, essentially the premise is, I've traveled all over, as you know, with yeah. business, all sorts of different countries, and just met really interesting people along the way. And uh, you, of course, are one of the interesting people I've met along the way who's been super nice guy, always good to see each other. And uh, you're a professional fighter, professional real estate guy, new, <laughs> I guess it's not new anymore, but you're a dad. Yeah. So I uh, just wanted to, like, talk about your experiences and, and you know, just, like, learn from you, how you look at the world, my <laughs> man. Sounds great. Yeah. So w- what's it like to be? A professional cage fighter um i guess probably the dumbest thing you can do to make a living you know <laughs> I love um, go out there and have somebody uh try to beat you up every time um it's so funny people are always like oh, how much uh how much video do you watch from this guy what do you know about what he's gonna do and like obviously there's a level of preparing and knowing what they do and everything but ultimately he's gonna go out there and try to beat me up i'm gonna try and beat him up i don't know how much there is to really preparing for exactly what he's going to do. Yeah, yeah. Just try to, like, improve the skills overall uh-huh. day over day, week over week, year over year. And then, I mean, I, I imagine there's a great deal of nerves. Yeah, And you absolutely. hear, like, some people speak more to that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, everybody deals with it. It's terrible. Um, you got the people that want to try and sound tough and act like they don't get super nervous, but they do. Yeah. Um, and then you've got, I think there are a few people out there that are just – missing you know it's like when you grow up you miss those those people you grow up with they're missing that ability to understand they can get hurt you know yeah um and you know like the nerves for a fight aren't oh am i gonna get hurt they're oh i've got to win you know but still there's people that are there's everyone saw those people that are missing that ability to be nervous um but you know 99 percent of the people that fight are just miserably nervous before every fight they just don't like to talk about it yeah or now like, I know sometimes there's fighters who, like, rub each other the wrong way and things like that. I don't necessarily see you being that guy. But did, is anybody ever sort of real, like, open with that? Like, geez, man, I'm sweating bullets about this fight. I didn't feel good the last week. And, like, talk to each other like that? Or would you feel like you were exposing somebody strategically? Um, I mean, you know, people usually don't want to tell their opponent that. Uh, you know, afterwards, people will come and, like, make excuses a lot, you know. Uh, one of my favorite ones is, uh, my fight in Israel I was supposed to buy, fight Anatoly Tokov, and he blew his knee out. So they replaced him with, um, uh, oh, my gosh, Jason Radcliffe. And uh, right before that fight, I hurt my neck pretty bad. And it was to the point that I couldn't stretch because my neck was so tight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really stretch for, like, the past, last three weeks of that fight. And then the day before I left, I was going to run hill sprints, and I – pull the muscle in my hip I think from not being able to stretch and so I could barely walk uh, I had to get in touch with the uh, testing committee to see if I could take uh, prednisone to try and help the inflammation and I couldn't take it so basically I had to go in on nothing but ibuprofen like I couldn't hardly walk all week um, pretty much laying in bed it was hard to cut weight because I couldn't do much and so I go out there and I you know in the, in the uh, to my corners like I this has to end in the first round because who knows when I'm going to be able to move in the second round. So I go out there, I submit him in like two and a half minutes, and he comes back to the locker room. He's just complaining to me about injuries he's had and how I, you know, I was hurt. I shouldn't have taken this fight and all that. And I was, 
Of course, I'm not going to tell him that I was messed up. But I was like, oh, yeah, no worries, man. I appreciate you taking the fight. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love that when people like, want to come tell you all their excuses and reasons why things didn't go well after yeah. the fight. Yeah. It's almost like it would be hard to hold that back a little bit. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> but that's cool though, that um, you did. It's worth it. But it's just, uh, it's funny what people will say, you know, and, uh, but yeah, it's usually everything's after the fight. Very rarely do people like tell you anything beforehand, you know, and people usually you don't really talk to your opponent much beforehand other than, Hey, good luck, you know, or, you know, something along those lines. How have the nerves changed over the years? Cause you're about what, 13 years into pro fighting. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I don't know that it really changes a whole lot. Um, other than in the beginning, you know, I made my, my amateur debut in 2007 and, um, I was, uh, I fought a pretty good guy. It was like five and one as an amateur, you know, which isn't world class or anything like that. But it's a guy that maybe will turn pro one day. And uh, so I kind of took that fight as if I can't beat this guy, then I don't need to be doing this. I'm wasting my time. So obviously that was a lot of pressure and nerves and stuff. And then now it's like, you know, to the point, well, if I don't have a good performance here, may, is it time for me to hang it up? You know, so and it, it just changes all the way through. Um I remember when I was fighting Kendall Grove, you know, Kendall Grove was still one of the top guys in the world. He's beaten a lot of really good guys and uh, sitting in the back going, well, you know, if I, if I can't beat Kendall tonight, who knows if Bellator's going to want me anymore, you know? So there's, it's just always something, you know, it never goes away. Oh man, I can't imagine. And I mean, he, uh, he's originally from Hawaii, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. They're a little bit different breed. I feel like they're naturally more confident, like rougher. I don't know. I think they're the big thing about a guy like him is he's just there to fight. You know, like like I'm there to be a technician and I'm there to win. Kendall Grove, as good as he is, super technical, great jujitsu, good striking, but he's there to fight. He doesn't. I think at the end of the day, he just wants a good fight. Yeah. Um. And uh, it's funny. I walked into the hotel in my corner. I actually flew in separately from me, so I got to the hotel by myself. And um, it's a hotel and casino, so it's a huge lobby area. And uh, I look across, and I hear somebody scream, Salter, and I look up, and it's Kendall Grove. He's, you know, on the other side of the casino, and he starts running towards me. He's just a super nice guy anyway. And he, like, shakes my hand. He's like, let's beat the crap out of each other Friday night. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I told our corner, I was like, we have a very different game plan for the, how this fight's going to go because that is not what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, like uh, I'm hoping I do more beating the crap out of yeah. you than vice versa. Those uh, Hawaiians are, are brawlers, so, you know, it's it's tough because they'll suck you into their game. Yeah, it's wild. I've, I've been out there a fair bit, and uh, it's just it's just different. You know, they're yeah. used to being outside more. It's kind of like how I think when I come across in the work world, somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I grew up on a farm, or, yeah. you know, I used to do this type of job. You know, it's a little bit different. You came from a rural area, right? No, I came from outside of Birmingham. Yeah. So it was a suburban area. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was in Hawaii one time, and a guy told me uh, – he was like, you see those guys over there? Uh, they're Samoans. He's like, they uh, they throw rocks at each other for fun. So they're a different <laughs> breed. <laughs> and now, you know, as you get older and you're uh, fighting some of these guys, I'm like, he might have been right about that. Yeah. So I, I played rugby at VMI. And actually, my recent um, encounter with that was they were playing the alumni game. And there's a school right next to, um, right next to VMI that pulls a big uh, – Ah, uh, what's it called in Utah? The religion. Oh, uh, Mormon. Mormon, uh-huh. and apparently uh, Samoan or or Pacific Islanders. That's that's big with them. So yeah. at this school, they have a big population of like Samoan folks. 
So their rugby team is just like stacked. Oh yeah, bet. for a school that otherwise probably wouldn't pull like incredible athletes. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's just my assumption, but. Anyway, they brought those guys on just for fun during the alumni game, and it was like, the game's about to change, boys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, isn't it strange, and I, I have no idea the reason for this, but I know that Utah has a pretty big Samoan population. Yeah, yeah. Seems well, very surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's the biggest Mormon area of the U.S., right? Yeah, I guess uh, is that maybe that's why. I don't know. I don't know. I guess when I heard the other thing, then I just tied the two together. Yeah, but it just seems be weird that, like, all your Pacific Islanders – that come, come to, to America Utah, end up in Utah, like Florida, just be landlocked. Not, yeah, yeah, not like California. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fair. I'm sure it's a. You know, I've only been to Utah one time. It's beautiful, but oh um, yeah, it's still like that surprises me. Yeah, the hiking out there is incredible. Yeah, but what what about the uh, the weight cutting? That's something that people talk about a lot. Like, what's the experience with um, that, and how do you think it plays into fighting? You know, it's that really just changes so much as you get older. You know, well, I say get older. I think. Um, I came into the sport at a time when the world has changed in uh, combat sports. Like, you know, guys that are coming in now are coming in with everybody has knowledge. You know, when I came in, I graduated college in 2007. I knew people knew very little about how to do things, you know. Um, Even though, you know, we've been wrestling forever, the idea for wrestling was get all your water weight out, and that's what you do. So, you know, nobody, nobody drank a gallon of water a day in wrestling because we didn't know, you know, while people knew that drinking a gallon of water a day helps you lose weight, nobody ever thought about being overhydrated and making it easier to cut the water off, you know? Yeah. So, like, nobody did that. Everybody just drank, you know, I, I would rather eat a big dinner and drink a half a cup of water than get much water, and that's how, what everybody did. So, we cramped up all the time, you know? Um, and, uh, but what amazes me now is now we know, you know, and I, I, we know, you know, if you can cut, uh, what, you know, in a week we start two gallons a day, a week out of weigh-ins, and then you drop down to a gallon a day uh, the day before weigh-ins, and then you take your salt out, and you do all this, and you just sweat so much easier. It's pretty simple, and I feel like everybody knows, but you still, you go to Bellator fights, you go to the UFC fights. So these are guys that are top-level fighters, and they still don't know how to cut weight. They're still doing it like we did in high school and college, you know. And uh, that's the one thing that blows my mind, but there's very few people that do it that way do it the wrong way, but it still blows my mind that anybody does, you know? Yeah. Um, but in college and high school, we stayed dehydrated for a, a whole wrestling season. Yeah, you know, it, it was, was terrible. Miserable. I yeah. mean, I didn't cut, like, a lot, and I didn't do it after high school. I didn't, like, continue wrestling, unfortunately. But, yeah, that was totally it. It was just, like, you know, pur- not, not purge, but, like, whittled down to nothing. Like, mm-hmm. no intake. Because the idea yeah. was anything I intake is going to, yeah, know, I'm going to have to remove it, you know, by like sweating, working out, whatever. And it was just, you know, the more, I don't know as a fan, like how many people hear the right way. I, I feel like I follow enough stuff that I've heard some of what you said, but mm-hmm. never even in that much detail. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, really it's simple once you do it and you're like, oh, wow, that, that makes a huge difference. But people give up on it because you drink that two gallons the first day and you get ready for bed that night and you're seven or eight pounds heavier than you were that morning, you know, and everybody panics. But if you just stick with it through the week, it works. Um, but the other thing, I know you remember this from wrestling is the, I mean, I guess it made sense, but it's still looking back. I'm like, I would never do this anymore is how much we got on the scale and weighed our food, mm-hmm. you know, like the night before a match. I'm like, 
okay, I really want to eat this stack of pancakes. So let me get on the scale and see how much these pancakes weigh. You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, I can make weight eating them. Um, and then even when uh, – this is one of the things I always think was one of the funniest things that my coach did in college that um, got us yelled at, but it was his fault, I think. We weighed in for the national duels, and we had to buy the first match in the morning. So there was like a 9 a.m. match, and then we were the 11 a.m. match. So we weighed in at 7. Our coach went, I don't know why he thought this was a good idea, and got everybody McDonald's hotcakes. And so after weigh-ins, we just ate a ton of McDonald's hotcakes. And, of course, you know, we haven't eaten that all season, so I'm eating as much as I can. And then everybody wrestled like crap at our 11 a.m. match, and then he was furious at us for being slow and sluggish. And how are we going to move full of pancakes? You yeah, know? hindsight's 2020. Uh-huh. And now, there's been so much information that's come to light, like to your yeah. point. And now, like, the idea of eating something unhealthy the week of a fight, like, it's crazy, you know? Yeah, even after weigh-ins, right? But mm-hmm. some people do still, right? Yeah, a lot of people do. We were uh, – I've got a really good friend of mine does still, uh, but we were in Italy for a fight, and uh, we got done with weigh-ins, and we went to eat. And I had, like, you know, probably uh, – usually after weigh-ins, I'll eat a steak and something like that, you know, steak and vegetables. And we walked back into the hotel, and one of the guys that was fighting the next night had a pizza and a Coke in front of him and was eating that the night before a fight. And he did not win that night. So um, I would say that probably helped him not win. Yeah. What do you think was more detrimental, the soda or the pizza? I don't know. Uh, I like soda. I don't drink soda within two months of a fight. But I've never felt the change from drinking soda or not drinking it. Okay. So I don't know that – I know weight-wise it affects people, but as far as how I feel and my cardio, I don't think it's ever made a difference. But I just stopped drinking it because I know it's probably not the smartest thing to do, you know. Yeah. Um, but then I know people that swear by it uh, makes them feel better after weigh-ins and stuff like that. So I think a lot of that stuff kind of comes down to person to person, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's it's interesting to learn, you know, and in, in as it applies outside of just fighting, but how much that – exists like yeah how much stuff varies person to person and what works well for you might not work great for somebody else and so on the uh now when you cut weight like that with the water intake do you still threaten like messing up your stomach uh yeah i mean anything i think one of the main things people mess up their stomach with is you eat super healthy for six weeks or whatever kind of time frame you eat healthy and then after weigh-ins you go eat something you wouldn't normally eat you know and mm-hmm. that's going to destroy you know just about anybody um, so that's one thing that really messes people up. And the other thing is you deplete yourself so much, you get all your food out, you get all your, uh, liquids out, and then you have that rush to how much can I get back in me as fast as I can, you know? And, uh, one thing that I have changed, and I think this is something that you kind of have to pay attention to. And if you're never told you don't do it is like my first bottle of water after weigh-ins, I've got to take, you know, three, four minutes to drink that bottle of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I'll go to a Pedialyte, and I need to take you know maybe five minutes to finish that Pedialyte because I'd love to just step on the scale, step off, and chug a Pedialyte, you know. Um, but then after that, then okay, now I'm a bottle of water in, I'm a Pedialyte in. I'll start sipping on water and start eating a little bit, little by little. And about forty five minutes after weigh ins, okay, now I can go eat a meal, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, the two great things or two things that I think are different is we know now that. You need to take that time. And the other big thing is in wrestling, you really don't have that, right? Because if it's a dual match, you've got one hour between weigh-in and wrestling. And if it's a 
tournament, you have two hours. So you really don't have the luxury of, hey, I'm going to spend an hour working my uh, way up to eating and drinking and wrestling like you do in MMA. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. So uh, what, uh, you know, I've heard um, like different people refer to it as like sanctioned cheating because you can cut so much, mm-hmm. but everybody's doing it. Yeah. So it's, it's like hectic. Um, the uh, So when you do it that way, uh, I, this is the last question I'll have about weight cutting. When you do it that way, is really that last like 24 or 30 hours or whatever really the miserable part? Whereas in wrestling, I feel like it's like, at least when we did it the wrong way that you were describing earlier, it was like three days. Yeah. And if you had two weigh-ins or matches, whatever, competitions a week, then it was like miserable all week. Yeah. Yeah, and it really, it's such a, uh, other thing's a huge change since I've been in, uh, MMA in uh, lower, lower level organizations haven't really cha- made this change yet because they don't have the ability to bring people in so much earlier. But so it used to be weigh-ins were like 5 p.m. and that means really you get on the scale at 5:30, you know. Uh, but now um, they've moved it up so much. They started doing in the UFC and Bellator both started doing weigh-ins. I think it was like you could do a let between 11 uh, a.m. and noon. And I really thought that was great because then I could go to bed not hungry. I mean, I couldn't eat much. So I could go to bed not too hungry, get up in the morning. If I get up at 8, I've got three hours to cut weight, you know. Um, and as long as I wake up somewhere close, three hours is plenty of time. You know, if i got to drop 10 pounds, that's no problem. Um, but then uh, then they started moving it up. So now we do our weigh-ins, uh, depending sometimes we'll do between eight and nine, sometimes between nine and 10, eight and nine is tough because I've either got to get up at 5am start cutting weight, or I've got to cut weight the night before and then try to sleep sucked out, you know, which yeah. is what we used to do in wrestling all the time. Uh, but that's the miserable part is trying to sleep dehydrated, you know? Yeah. Um, so that does make it tougher, but yeah, it's still just, you know, that last little bit, because if I, if I've got 9am weigh-ins, I'm not going to start my weight cut until about 7 uh, p.m. the night before. So I'm going to feel somewhat decent all day, you know. Uh, and then that night sucks. But then we go into now, okay, I wait in by 9 o'clock. I've got, uh, what's that, you know, 36 hours to get my weight to where I want it. Um, so I think it's that's probably better for people's health. But then you get guys that are, you know, 185ers walking around at 215 when they step in the cage. Yeah, yeah. That's hectic. I can't imagine because that's got to make a huge difference. Yeah, I don't know the science behind it, but I know a lot of people talk about the blood-brain barrier and how sucking water uh, out of your system will affect that. I don't know how much truth there is to that, and I don't know how long it would take to put it back, but I think that's the idea is to try and make people healthier when they step in the cage. But it really just you know skyrockets everybody's uh, weight. Yeah, yeah. Well, then I guess there's maybe a smaller percentage of guys doing it the way wrong way. Yeah. Well, and the other crazy thing is, you know, we're going to say we're trying to do this for the health of the athletes, but we're not going to let you get uh, IV be replenished through IV. Yeah. And I, honestly, I'm not entirely sure that that's still the rule anymore, but I know for a long time that was the rule. You couldn't have IV liquids put back in you. Yeah. Um, and they could test your blood for the, I think, what I've been told, the plastic particles in it. Um so I, I'm trying to think. I don't think anybody that, that I know anybody that's actually been tested for that, but they did have a rule for a long time, and it may still be the rule. I just haven't done it, so I don't, I don't even think about it anymore. 
that you can't rehydrate with IVs. I was pretty sure that I'd heard that, at least recently, that that was still the rule. Yeah, I don't, uh, it seems like if you're just looking, we want to make you healthy, why wouldn't you do that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, that brings up another question I had. So, they were they were talking about a couple of guys who, who got in trouble for, like, gambling on, mm-hmm. I guess, their fights or their athletes' fights and what on that's been a big thing lately. And um, Dana White was like, hey, you know, I've told these guys X, Y, Z. And for a moment, and that was in the press conference the other night, and for a moment it's like I pulled out and looked at the UFC is obviously like a corporation, like mm-hmm. and the fighters as employees, not just guys who, you know, it's it's like you see their work on Saturday night and you see it leading up on like the embedded and training stuff and following their social media. But I was I was kind of thinking it's like what do you like call an all company meeting and say okay guys this is like the new rule like how does how does that side of it work for y'all and I know you know Bellator versus UFC but like. Uh, I think that's going to be just uh, an email out to everybody, you know, yeah. um, and and I would think somebody like that that's got several fighters in the organization, there's going to be direct contact, I would assume, between uh, one of the matchmakers and that person or maybe between Dana and that person. I don't know. Um, I know, you know, mass emails get sent out to everybody. Um, those can easily be missed too, but you know, most of the time, any manager is going to be contacted to let know what's going on. And I would say the majority of the time, anything time Bellator has to get information to me, it's through my manager. Mm-hmm. Um, they they'll send me emails, but I almost always just get everything from him. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's like for everybody, but it's like you don't always think of it as like uh, like employees in a company yeah. that, mm-hmm. that need to like take note of information and, yeah. and, and there's updates. And so like to the rules and such is kind of interesting to, to step out and think like that. Yeah. I think that one, uh, should have been a no brainer. Yeah. Think yeah. But as it relates yeah. to something else, like here's a change in the, uh, rehydration rules or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I can imagine it was all sorts of weird during the COVID times. Yeah. Man, what a uh, crazy world it, it became during that. You know, yeah. and all the rules were so dumb. The I will say um, that the UFC did a very good job of the way they ran things by having that hotel, you know. But it's still just absurd rules that were set in place, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, uh, you know, and, and not to get all crazy into everything, but I know they even had a point. Like at one point, UFC and Bellator's. Well, if you're vaccinated, you can do whatever you want. If you're not, you can't. But then the vaccinated people are coming right back to all, with all the unvaccinated people when, you know, they could have spread it just as easy as anybody. Yeah, and that's all. Whole vaccine thing has been like touchy topic with what it does, what it doesn't mm-hmm. do, what people said in the beginning. Well, when I fought Masasi, I was standing, uh, I was standing in the weigh-ins lines with a uh, Hamasi, and he was telling me, I. I may tell this slightly wrong. I'm trying to remember exactly what he was saying, but both of his corners, they were, they were vaccinated. He wasn't, but both of them came out and then tested positive for COVID when we got there. And he was like, basically since they're vaccinated, then they said, I'm fine to stay. They had to go back. I'm like, but yeah, you were sitting on the plane with them the whole time. So you're definitely going to have COVID, you know? So, yeah. All I was thinking, because we were standing away in lines together, we had to be tested. Uh, you know, I was like, well, at least I'll be tested before I have time to test positive so they can't take me out of this fight, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was. I, I thought that was kind of a crazy one because um, 
just, you know, the way they did things. But I know ultimately, you know, it's like what I've said every time I've talked about, it, I'm just so grateful that they did what they did to move on, you know, because yeah. it would have been so easy to say, we just don't have, we can't do this. It's too difficult, you know? So I'm just glad that uh, Bellator and the UFC both kind of dealt with the ridiculous rules and setups and everything that they were put through just to make sure we still had fights and kept moving forward. Yeah, I feel like it did a lot for the sport, too. I mean, I think yeah. the sport has grown tremendously and evolved in so many ways, like to your point about stepping up the game and, and like, education around the hydrating and, like, all the crazy things in terms of, like, nutrition for performance and that over the years. But, too, you know, they've, they've made some really critical moves to grow the sport over time. It's I feel like it's an incredible time to be a part of it. Well, especially there for a little while, you know, there's no other sports going on. Yeah. So that was a really good thing, I think, for the sport is if you wanted to watch a sport for a little bit, it had to be MMA. Um, and then, you know, if, if you didn't want to see a sport where they were, you know, even what was football, basketball, everything, you know, there's a chance that your roster is completely benched this week because – you know, a couple of guys tested positive, at least the UFC and Bellator are doing a really good job of bring, you know, replacing fights last second to make sure that fight cards stay together. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing about the sport. That's mm-hmm. true. That, uh, but uh, I mean, also I feel like jujitsu has been on the come up too, right? Like, like, I don't know if it's just what I pay attention to, but it seems like, um, like some, like the John Danaher team is like moving to Puerto Rico and training such that they can like, have some less rules and stay together and things like that. Yeah, I think they did that like the beginning of COVID, and mm-hmm. now they've all gone their different ways. Yeah, which is but, weird too. But. Yeah, but it, I think you got a a different type of group of people that uh-huh. uh, they were just gonna destined to drift apart, you know. But um, but yeah, jujitsu's made such a big change in probably the past five years, but especially since COVID hit, because you know for a long time. And, you know, I'm a black belt, been a black belt since 2013. I do a lot of gi. I love gi. But because I'm a wrestler, everybody assumes I'm not a gi guy. Um, even though I would really prefer to do gi more than no gi uh, if it weren't, you know, strictly for MMA and the fact that the majority of people in my gym really love no gi. But uh, it was always this thing, especially when I ran the gym in California, or, yeah, I mean, you're a black belt, but you don't really do gi. And, which is not true because, like I said, I love gi. Especially back then, I was doing gi at least once a day, usually two times a day. Um, but the persona or the kind of idea people had was like, well, if you're not really a gi guy, you don't really do jujitsu. You just kind of wrestle with people, you know. And now, no gi has surpassed gi in popularity um, and what people want to watch. And I get what you want, you know, as far as watching it because gi is a lot of we fight for a grip for five minutes and nothing really happens where no gi is very explosive dynamic. It's like wrestling, but it's just crazy to me how much the world's changed of gi is not necessarily as popular as no gi now. And I think that has really helped the sport of jujitsu because it's brought a lot more athletes in and a lot more excitement. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the scrambles. I feel like can be really dynamic because you can slip away. Yeah. You don't get that with the gi, right? Yeah. And, you know, in 2017, I qualified for the ADCC trial, or I won the ADCC trials, qualified for ADCC. So for anybody that doesn't know, that's basically the Olympics for jiu-jitsu. It's every two years. Uh, we, you know, if you qualify, it's top 16 people in the world qualified each weight class, and then you compete. Uh, it's different place, locations around the world. The year that I uh, qualified, we competed in Finland. Um, but 
when I qualified, I had a huge bracket. It was, there's two qualifiers in North America. So I, I was in the North, the West coast when I had two world champs in my weight class, I had to beat both of those, but you know, I had six matches, I think yeah, six matches to win. So it's a pretty big tournament, but then in 2021, I went to New Jersey for the East coast trials and I think I had seven matches and still wasn't in the finals, you know? Um, so it was just, there was, I had 150 something people in my weight class, a uh, couple of world champs again, you know, but just so many more people and maybe not even necessarily as high level people, but just so many more people wanting to compete in things like the ADCC trials and stuff like that, you know? Uh, and I think that's just people's excitement for the sport. You know, I had one guy in, in my whole weight class in 2017, there was probably one guy that really wasn't uh, maybe the quality to be there for that, that didn't have a chance to win. And he says, like, I just want to be a part of history, so that's why I'm here. But then in 2021, there was probably 30 guys in the weight class that were just wanted to be a part of it, you know. And so it's kind of cool how much people get excited about it now. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, even if you know, um, you know, in that particular person, like, but you're not going to be there. That's the best of the best, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the crazy the, – the thing about ADCCs that's so cool, and I think that's why people are really getting into no-gi, I think that has a lot to do with it, is, you know, if you go to the IBJJF and you're a world champion, there's – I forgot how many weight classes, but there it's like wrestling, like high school wrestling. You know, there's, a, there's 14 weight classes in high school wrestling. You get to college and there's 10. So you really con- condense down how many – weight classes there are for the athletes to compete in. So uh, it's kind of like the ADCCs where there's, I think there's five weight classes. So if you think about five weight classes for, uh, you know, for us is very small. So that means that every weight class is stacked with studs. So that's how you end up with three world champs in one weight class, you know. And uh, that's like the year that I wanted. I had Josh Hinger, who was the defending world champ. I had him in the semifinals. And then I moved on, and I had DJ Jackson, who had won Worlds several times um, in the finals, you know, and uh, where if you go to the IBJJF, you're probably not going to run into that scenario, you know. Yeah, yeah. Then what? what is, like, the most memorable match for you, like, for, for any reason? Um, as far as um, – Like, those sound like big ones. Those are big wins, but maybe they aren't necessarily, like, uh, the most memorable matches that you're most proud of. Or maybe they are. Yeah, I would say for like just straight jujitsu, um, probably one, one that I thought was really funny is I had uh, Kyle Boehm in the quarterfinals in 2017. Boehm uh, won the divi- his division this year or in 2021. So I mean, uh, you know, he's he's a stud. He's top of the. I think he's normally right now sticking around like ranked number two in the world um, for like all weight classes, I think. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. I know he's ranked really high in the IBJJF. Um, but anyway, uh, I was going against him, and the way it works in ADCCs is the first half of the match, there's no points scored. And then the points start in the second half. And now you can submit them many times, but as far as winning by points, the first half, it doesn't do any good to score. And Boehm's a really big guy, so we were kind of hand-fighting the whole time. There was like 10 seconds before point score start and I was thinking he's got to keep him on his feet I need to get a takedown and score two points here and he pulls guard with like 10 seconds left I was like oh great now okay I just got to pass this guard but this is going to be significantly harder and uh with one second left before point start he stood back up (laughs) I was 
I cannot believe he just did that. So as soon as they said points, I took him down and took his back, and I just held his back the rest of the time. So I won uh, 5-0, you know. But uh, it was just funny because that one sticks in my head so much because he had a chance to make it so much harder on me, and with one second left, he stood back up. Wow. Um, and then I went, and this one was really uh, – this, this one really stuck in my head because there was a guy, and I'm not going to say names or anything, that trained at the gym in California that I uh, was the head jiu-jitsu instructor at. He would never come to my practices, He was, but he always talked about how his whole life revolved around jiu-jitsu. He's going to be this big competitor, but he wouldn't come to my practices because they were too hard all the time. He avoided me like the plague, and um, he was a purple belt then. Well, he moved to Atos, which is probably arguably the best gym in the world in San Diego, and started training down there and got his brown belt. And then I'm going against Josh Hinger, who's an Autos black belt, defending world champion. And uh, we are going against each other in the semifinals. And it starts out, and I think it's like uh, Andre Galvo, who's one of the top black belts in the world, is in Hinger's final, uh, corner. And, of course, coming in, and, you know, I didn't really compete in jiu-jitsu for probably three or four years just because I was concentrating on fighting. And uh, so other than MMA, they really didn't know much about me. And so I'm beating Hinger, um, you know, with like a minute left. Every black belt in Autos is in his corner now. They've all ran out of the stands. They're in his corner screaming, going crazy. I have one friend there with me <laughs> sitting in my corner. Um, and then uh, this guy that left and went down there, he's over there going crazy. And um, so I beat Hinger. And I go over to shake their hands. And, of course, that guy didn't even want to look at me, you know. Um, and then afterwards, uh, he just goes running by. He's like, I've got to get a Gatorade for Hinger. He's too tired. And uh, I was thinking, like, you know, this whole time that you, like, worship these people. And you all, you just ignore me like I'm the plague because your friend will make you work too hard. And now you're running errands for these guys, you know. Yeah. I just always thought that was funny. Yeah, man. People can be. Weird, right? Like yeah. pride is a well. You can see it in people's eyes. Like that—that's a good match too. That I've got friends that because Josh Hinger is a jujitsu guy, right? He doesn't do MMA, just does jujitsu. He's on social media about jujitsu, all this stuff all the time. So all these guys think like, well, he's he spends all his time in jujitsu, so he's got to be better than a fighter at jujitsu. And I have friends who, after I beat him, they very clearly. Like the way they talked to me, they wouldn't tell me this, but the way they talked to me, like, they wanted me to have a good match with him where I lost. Mm-hmm. And like broke their hearts that I beat him, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> we're good friends. I came back to Wilmington and I had like people that uh, train at other gyms around here that would like talk to me about it. So, what's it like to compete against Hinger? I'm like, well, like a guy that's almost as good as me, you know? Ooh. But they wouldn't come, won't come train, wouldn't dare, you know, come train at a gym where we do no gi, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you want to do more ADC stuff? ADC? Um, I probably will later on, uh, you know, when I'm done fighting, which I, I'm probably not going to fight too much longer. But uh, it's hard. The only reason I did it in 2017 is I was supposed to fight uh, Alexander Shlomenko, and he pulled out a couple times. And the second time he pulled out, I was already – and when I say pulled out, he never signed the contract, so it's not like he backed out of the fight last second. But he had – I would thought we had a fight coming up, and I was getting ready for it. And when he didn't uh, didn't fight, then ADCC trials were like two weeks away. And my buddy was like, why don't you go do that? And I really didn't want to go then. And uh, my wife, if you know, the finals were in Finland, she's like, I want to go to Finland really bad, so you're going to go compete. 
And, I like uh, that. So I was like, you know, that's why I went then. And I went in 2021 because Joe Selecki uh, really wanted to compete. So I said, well, if you compete, I'll go with you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I think Joe and I will probably compete more uh, as time goes on. And, and I'll probably get back to kind of my jiu-jitsu roots. Because before I started fighting pro, I did compete a decent amount in jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Is there, is it like significantly harder in terms of any of those perimeter stuff like weight cutting and ever changing rules and just every tournament's different, you know? So that makes it tough. Um, I had a tournament, uh, in, uh, Rome, Georgia, and they were going to do, uh, Roman battle axes for the champions. Oh, that's good. And then my friend wanted, he was like, we have to go do this and we'll both get battle axes and we'll put them up in the gym crossing yes. i was like oh yeah that sounds great man i'll go with you to do it and then we're like we find out like, i think it was like the day before maybe two days before that just the way the weight classes fell we were in the same weight class so then it's on me to cut the weight and get down to the next weight class so i got to kill myself for like because i hadn't prepped to cut or anything you know so then i got to kill myself for two days to get in there and make weight and uh i finally make weight i go win and then he lost in the finals Oh no! Like, I did all this work, and I could have just done that weight class. <laughs> That's but, fantastic. Yeah, so we didn't even get to cross our battle axes. Oh man! Well, maybe he'll do it next time. Yeah, yeah. The uh, what about the EBI rules? You like that, or is that is that almost like a separate thing? Uh just I, I know a lot of a lot of places are going to this, so people like it. I get it. But the overtime rules of I get the star on your back. Yeah. But the, what I really hate is you're seeing guys win. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Vanderford is a perfect example of you're seeing these guys, they can wrestle well, so they can stall for 10 minutes and just stay on top. I can't pass your guard. I can't score. I can't do anything. But now that we've made it 10 minutes, I get to start on your back, you know? Yeah. And you see these guys that are really strong that are spending that kind of time so they can start on your back and squeeze as hard as they can, you know? Makes and, sense. uh, I know a lot of people love it, so I, I don't mean that it shouldn't be done or anything like that. But I just I think it's a ridiculous rule that all you have to do is stall against me for as long as you can, and then you're going to get the start on my back. Yeah. Is there anybody who's like across? Because I would think if across all rule sets, if you're like dominant in each, that would that'd be an interesting testament, you know? Well, I think that uh, you know Gordon Ryan's that guy. There's, he's I think he's pretty much hand down, hands down the best in the world. I don't think anybody's going to catch him anytime soon uh i think yeah it's like watching georgia play this year i think for him to get beat he's gonna have to get bored you know mm-hmm. uh and uh i just it's it's kind of crazy too you could be just i just can't think of anybody that could really push him you know yeah have you met him yeah a few times yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's cool man I, he does like and he's young too yeah i mean he doesn't look that young but he's yeah. like shockingly young to be so so dominant yeah yeah yeah, that's wild. Um, and he kind of changed the world in jiu-jitsu because he came out as really the, the first guy that could just leg lock everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. And he kind of changed the world. But when he became so dominant was when he got away from that. And he started wrestling at Rutgers, and he started getting better at that, and they started getting where he could pass anybody's guard and all that. So really, it's funny, what made him famous and what everybody, what changed jiu-jitsu as far as his leg lock game he doesn't even really do it much anymore. You know, he's not a leg locker now, which I know he's still world-class at that, but his he's go out there, take you down, smash, pass, and submit you, you know. But uh, what he did in the beginning changed jiu-jitsu, and people are still 
really focused on that aspect of what he did. Yeah. The thing he did, um, I don't know where it was. It might have been one of the, I don't know where it was. I won't venture to guess. But the he wrote down and put in an envelope how he was going to beat somebody. That oh, there was really? a big controversial thing. I don't know if it was Felipe Pena or uh, Galvao, but he said, don't open this until after the match. And uh-huh. then he beat and submitted in that fashion and then went back over to the commentator's desk and they opened it and they were like, no way. <laughs> You know, because it, it said something like rear naked choke yeah. in second period or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he he's that level, you know. Um, I just don't think there's anybody out there right now that can, uh, you know, may, maybe that really big guy from Europe. I can't, oh, gosh, I can't remember his name now. Dan something, huge guy, great leg locker. Maybe a guy that big, you know, but I think it's going to take somebody that has a size, significant size advantage on him. But now uh, – He's so big. He yeah. Now he, that he's got his like uh, digestional issues yeah. sorting out. Because when he came out, you know, was he like one seventy something like that when he was uh, winning everything with leg locks, and then he was my size at eighty cc's in two thousand seventeen. Now he's walking around like two forty. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's so even a even a three hundred pound guy isn't going to be big enough to really keep him from being able to do anything you they're know? gonna have to have the skills too yeah i uh, mean winning winning weight classes and winning the absolute is like nuts right yeah it's unbelievable because you're you're wrestling like to your point world champs in this then doing the absolute mm-hmm. more world champs like. yeah 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 and there's no match there that's you know that's a pushover it's not like you go to a tournament and you got your first rounds an easy round to warm up you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's that's wild what uh what about like uh, goals in fighting? Like, is Vanderford somebody that could potentially be an appointment, uh, an opponent for you? Uh, yeah, potentially. Uh, he's he just dropped two in a row. Um, I'm thinking the way he lost those two, he may need a little time off. You know, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. Who knows? He's uh, he's tough. He's you know uh, great pressure on top. Great wrestler. So he's not an easy fight for anybody. You know, yeah. but. Uh, It'll be interesting to see where he goes from here because he had such a fast rise. They really, I don't want to say, Bellator gave him the right matchups to keep him looking really good, you know. And then he came out two fights in a row and just had a really, uh, and, you know, different things happen. So when I say a poor showing, I don't mean like, oh, he just performed really poorly. Just things didn't go his way quickly, you know. And, gosh, there's a lot of people that get knocked out by somebody in the first minute that they're a lot better than. So that doesn't mean – anything it's just those two did not go well for him you know yeah that's the craziest thing about fighting and maybe it goes to the nerves that you could do everything right in training not miss a beat prepare for the fight the right way have the right game plan and then just get caught when you think about in a football game if you know the best team in the country is playing you know some low-level team that shouldn't really this you know a homecoming game they kick off and that team runs a touchdown back right away then they just ball on the rest of the game you know but that's a knockout in mma you know that you don't recover from yeah so it's just so um so little forgiveness and i, I had a guy that's a boxer one time tell me why he likes boxing so much more is because like, the majority of the time in boxing the better guy wins because when you get knocked down you have time to stand up and recover and in mma it's not necessarily the better guy's going to win it's who who comes out and surprises somebody you know and it's like, ah, it's really made a lot of sense you know yeah that makes sense what what of those um what of those do you uh, like to watch uh uh you between boxing yeah like as a um as a fan 
Like a sport, boxing, MMA. I used to watch most MMA fights. I'm kind of at the point now where I kind of like to step away and be away from MMA on the weekends, you know. So unless it's something that's a pretty big deal or one of my friends is fighting, I usually won't watch. Um, and just because, like I said, I mean, I, I got to step away from that on the weekends because I spend all week training and coaching and running the gym. So I like to try and get away uh, from it. Um, boxing, I've never really been a huge boxing fan. Like, I mean, I like boxing. I think it's great. It's just I don't keep up with it enough to know what's going on most of the time, you know. So I've got friends that do. Like, Joe Selecki keeps up with everything. So usually if I have a question, I just ask Joe, and he can tell me the answer. I like it. What about uh, speak about the videos y'all do? I love that. That's yeah. so awesome. So. Um, well, yeah, we just kind of start out goofing around uh, more just for our entertainment, entertainment of people in the gym. And then uh, one of the videos we posted, and a couple days later, you know, it had like 12,000 views on it. And uh, I kind of made the joke, uh, you know, like, wow, people like seeing Tucker get slammed, you know. And then a couple of days later, it had like 150,000 views, you know. And so then that took off. I think uh, Jiu-Jitsu Times did an article about it. It's like, okay, well, let's start coming up with stuff, like actually putting some effort into it. But uh, Coach Tucker, unfortunately, uh, had, with a baby and being a full-time uh, high school teacher and football and wrestling coach, doesn't get in much anymore, so we don't get to make a whole lot more of those videos. Um, but we had a good time making them, and you know, pretty much just I would come up with an idea. Tucker would say, no, there's no way I'm doing it. And after about a month, I'd talk him into doing it, you know, and um, so – it went pretty well. Um, even one of them got on, uh, you know, MTV, the show with uh, Rob Derdick, uh, oh, no Ridiculousness. Way. Yeah. So people people really like those. That is brilliant. I love it. It's like, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, it, you, you wouldn't want to do it with somebody else. Yeah. And like take it away. But. We did have to, for one of the videos, we had to take Tucker's scream and lay it over uh, <laughs> something we did for a police officer. Um, so we have we have done that. We did steal Tucker's essence. Uh, the most important thing about him is a scream, you know. So we took that from him. But uh, we'll, we'll come up with something, you know, uh, new. Corey, the guy who's slamming everybody and throwing everybody, he's been out of the state for, gosh, like six months now between all these, uh, uh, you know, natural disasters in Florida and with him being a diver and stuff, they've needed him everywhere. So he'll be back soon. We'll be able to come up with something fun. That's great, man. We look forward to it. Yeah, it'll be a good time. All right. We want to wrap it up? Yeah, it'll be perfect. All right, my man. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right.